yippee ki movie fans, this is Film Frontier, back from a little holiday hiatus. Uh, I'm Felicity, and this is Clarence. Hey, everybody. Today we're going to talk about uh, the 1953 Western uh, produced by and starring John Wayne, Hondo. Hondo! Hondo! <laughs> um, this was a uh, 3D production um, produced by Wayne's company. Um, in the credits, it's listed as Wayne Fellows, but it would later become known as Batjack. This was uh, an early production for his company. In the film, Wayne plays Hondo Lane, a dispatch rider and scout for the cavalry. Um, it opens with him walking across the plains, a lone man with his dog, and he comes up across a, uh, a ranch in the middle of Apache country, and uh, he's lost his horse to Apaches, and the Apaches are on the warpath now because of the whites have broken the treaty. He comes to this ranch and finds a woman, Angie, alone with her son. You look like you've had trouble. Yep, I lost my horse a few days ago, getting away from some Indians. Indians? We made dry camp last night above the Lano. But Sam here smelled more Apaches. Nuzzled me up, so I thought I'd put some miles between us. But why? We're at peace with the Apache. We have a treaty. Yes, ma'am. Now I gotta get me a new horse. Borrow or buy one. I can pay you in United States Crip. Riding dispatch for General Crook. The name's Lane. I'm Mrs. Lowe. I'm Johnny. The water sure looks inviting. Well, help yourself. Watch out for that dog, son. Could you hire me or sell me a horse, Mrs. Lowe? Of course. I've only got plow horses and two that are only half broken. The hand that was breaking them for me got hurt and had to go to town. You mean you're staying here alone? Oh, no. No, my uh, husband is up in the hills working some cattle. Oh. He would pick today to be away when we have a visitor. I enjoy meeting him, ma'am. She claims her husband is coming back soon, but it, he's clearly been gone for a while. Wayne helps out around the ranch a little bit and borrows a horse to return to the cavalry post and report uh, what's going on with the Apaches to the uh, cavalry. Meanwhile, the Apache chief Vittorio has taken an interest in Angie and her son, and he becomes blood brothers with her little boy and makes him a part of the tribe and gives her an ultimatum, basically, that... If her husband doesn't return soon, she can take an Apache uh, as her husband because the boy who's now a part of the tribe needs a father. Meanwhile, uh, Wayne eventually runs into um, Angie's husband, Ed Lowe, and we learn he is a, not a good person at all. They have some interactions and complications follow after that. I think that's really all you need to say about the plot at this point. <clears throat> I read that this was one of Wayne's personal favorites of his mm. own films. Um, it was also later spun off into the TV show from 1967. Right. Yeah, short-lived TV series in the 60s, yeah. And it's based on a Louis L'Amour story right. uh, that ran in Collier's Magazine. Yeah, A uh, Gift for Cochise was the title of it. Yes. Um, this was in 1952. It was published. Uh, Wayne read it and bought it for $4,000. Mm. It would later be novelized right and it would be uh, the first novel lamour wrote under his own name oh and the the novel came out the same day as the film oh and would go on to be named one of the 25 best western novels of all time by the western writers of america wow and i actually read the story and that it's based on mm -hmm. originally not the novel it's rather different than the the film cochise is the name of the head apache instead of uh, Vittorio. Vittorio. Hondo's character is named Chess. Uh, in the story, Angie has a daughter as well as a son, but the children really don't play any part of it. Hondo famously has a dog in the film. There's no dog in the in the story, and it it focuses a lot focuses a lot less on the Indian attacks. And there's no cavalry in the story. Mm. And it's basically just about. It starts out kind of interesting. It's just 
that Angie has been fighting off these Apache attacks. They say she's killed seven, wounded three, killed four ponies. And so Cochise has come to see her for himself. He doesn't believe this this one lone woman could uh, take off his men like that. He's or, got to see for himself who who could accomplish right. this. Yeah. This, it said, these were some of the same fighting men who had outfought, outguessed, and outrun the finest American army on record. An army outnumbering the Apaches by a hundred to one. Yet a lone woman with two small children had fought them off, and the woman was scarcely more than a girl. Right off the bat, it's, it, it shows her as this very strong, independent woman that don't need no man. Like in the film, she's not really in love with her husband who has kind of abandoned her for right. the last few months. Right. Again, unlike the film, the Hondo character, Chaz, in this, in this story, doesn't even meet Angie until much until the end of the story, really, hmm. it's he has an interaction with Angie's husband in a bar, and essentially her husband, Ed Lowe, saves him, and he believes, just as a debt to this man saving his life, that he owes it to Lowe, who's now dead from the fight, that uh, he ought to take care of Ed's wife. Hmm. And so he goes on a journey to find Angie. He doesn't even know where she is. He just knows she's somewhere in Apache country. Right. And it's kind of the same situation for him as he's presented this as this very strong, lone, independent warrior that's taking down all these Apaches in his way. And again, Cochise is like, how how is this one person <laughs> doing this? And he ends up running into Cochise and gets into a fight with one of his warriors, a knife fight, much like in the film. And rather than killing the warrior, Hondo uh, shows him mercy and hopes that the Apaches will show him mercy in mm-hmm. return. But they end up capturing him again, bringing him to Angie's house and say, here you go, Angie, here's a white man so you don't have to marry an Apache man. This guy <laughs> seems like a really good warrior. Uh-uh. The Hondo character cleans himself up and hmm. says, I might like to live here. I think it's they handle it better in the film, I think, of, of how he they, they believe Wayne to be her husband through a series of events that happen. He has the, the photo of the, the little boy. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting plot device. I yeah. thought it worked pretty well, I yeah. agree. And in the story, I would say there's not as much of a romance as there is in the film. I really yeah. liked in the film that you get the first 20 minutes or something of the film. It's just it's, yeah. pretty much Angie and Hondo and the boy. Right. And you get to see their relationship blooming. And Yeah, yeah, the first act of the film And even actually later, once he returns... From visiting the cavalry, you get some nice moments of just them at home. He's there's the famous scene of him throwing the boy into right, the river right, and teaching him how to swim. Right. And... You see where the sun is? Up there. Yeah, on the back of your neck. You're casting a shadow. If you can see it, the fish can see it. Always fish with the sun in your face. The other bank's the place. That is, if you want my opinion. Gosh, Embarado, I want your opinion. But Mama won't let me go over there. Why not? I can't swim. You can't what? I can't swim. How old are you? Six. Help him, he can't swim. I mean, learn. Everybody should swim. Just reach out in front of you and grab a handful of water. Pull it back towards you. Not too fast. That's the way I learned. I did it, Amarato, I did it! Good. Swim. Well, he might drown. Well, then you go get him. Well, I can't swim either. And this main Apache character who in the film is Vittorio uh, is said to be based on the, the real Apache chief, Victoria, who is right. taken down along with uh, mm. only 62 warriors by 260 Mexican soldiers 
in the 1880 Battle of Tres Castillos, which was described as a massacre because of the Apache shortage of uh, ammunition. And there was some revenge by the Apache after this, but really this battle uh, ended the era of like a lot of conflict between uh, the Apaches and Americans and Mexicans. Mm. And it said that after the death of uh, Victorio, never again were Apache fighters in such numbers to roam and ravage that country nor were they again to be so ably led and managed. Wow. And the, any future raids or conflicts were brief and simply small affairs compared to the size of Victoria's force and the destruction it's caused. Going back to the story origins of mm-hmm. it, um, the movie was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Motion Picture Story. Right. But the nomination was disqualified by Louis L'Amour, who asserted that this the short story was not an original. Right, it had to be an original story, right. yeah. This would be L'Amour's first Western adapted and second work of his adapted, the first being East of Sumatra, which is based on one of his short stories mm-hmm. directed by Bud Bedecker, oh, okay. who would go on to direct famous westerns right and Bedecker just as a side note uh, described the film as just a fun film to make all my friends some money <laughs> so you kind of love those little projects yeah, that yeah. are uh, just, just little, for the house a little vacation yeah. yeah I haven't read the novel but it sounds like probably what uh, became the novel is a lot of the screenplay which was written by James Edward Grant so he may deserve he may uh, deserve a lot of credit for the success of that novel he was a favorite screenwriter of John Wayne's wrote a lot of pictures for him the Alamo McClintock Angel and the Badman he kind of understood Wayne's voice, it sounds like. Yeah, Wayne, I think, felt very comfortable uh, working with uh, James Edward Grant. The script plays well in yeah. his voice in this film. I mean, he comes out as like a good actor in this he film. Does. I He's... know there's a lot of kind of complaints about John Wayne's acting and throughout his career, but I didn't witness any of that in this film. I yeah, I agree. This... I agree. And he's up there with uh, uh, Geraldine uh, Page, who's uh, you know New York Phenomenal stage. Phenomenal actress. Yeah. yeah. So as we said, this is uh, filmed in 3D, right? Which um, I would say it's actually a pretty important film in the history of 3D. Not a lot of people might know it's 3D is actually a really old process in the history. I mean, goes back almost to the beginning of film itself. Right. Uh, but really, the heyday was 52 to 54, I think. Right. Right, so and yeah, and this was like another attempt to get people back into theaters after the explosion of television, uh, like 3D and CinemaScope and those those widescreen features to get people back in the theaters. Yeah, I mean, it was really popular as Hondo was being shot, but unfortunately it was kind of waning by the time it was released. Right, um, no pun intended. Oh, I get it. <laughs> You might notice if you watch it on DVD as we did uh, or, or on streaming that there's an intermission in it, which seems a bit strange. Yeah, that was it's puzzling. A, it was an hour and a half An hour movie. and a half movie. Yeah, right. The reason for that is because the 3D process requires two projectors in a theater and you have to change the reel at a certain point. Yeah. That, along with some other factors, were a big, big reason why 3D started to wane as well as like the cameras itself themselves were hard to carry they were really bulky and i think even on this film they had been made a little bit smaller but they were still having to carry them around in the desert of mexico yeah Yeah, this is in chihuahua mexico they have this gigantic camera that they're hauling around you can find photos of it online. yeah like the photos it it looks like something you carry like a queen on her throne you've got like six or eight guys with staffs and yes toting this giant camera and it caused delays which resulted in some other the director problems that we'll talk about later yeah both the director and the dp had trouble adjusting to the technology the cameras would often break because of the sand getting into the machinery and there were really expensive cameras too and i think at a certain point 
uh, Warner wanted to take away one of the cameras they were using just because it was so expensive, but Wayne threw a fit yeah. and, and got his way, I, I, thankfully. You don't say no to John Wayne. No, certainly not. Actually, by May 1953, I have it that there were 15 reported 3D systems being in use in various studios and various production companies, mm-hmm. including Warner 3D, which is what uh, Honda was filmed with. And right. It was the first film to use that particular process. Okay. The first 3D Western was actually Fort Tye, which from 1953, which uh-huh. is a William Castle movie released okay. at Columbia, set during the French and Indian War. You know, film fans might recognize the name William Castle as going on to have a very gimmicky career, would introduce a lot of elements into theaters to, like you say, right. keep audiences coming to right. theaters. Things they couldn't get at home on yeah. television. The tingler and, and things like that, yeah. And it was actually this film, Fort Tye, that would uh, become the first 3D film broadcast on television in the U.S. and the U.K. Oh, interesting. I'm delighted that you're able to join us again for another milestone in the history of British television. Britain's first ever full-length feature film in 3D on television. Incidentally, if you haven't already got the special glasses on, now is the time to put them on and allow your brain to become accustomed to the experiences you're about to enjoy. Never forget, this is an experiment. So, sit back for a special experience in the best tradition of Hollywood, an adventure called Fort Tye. The other problem uh, with the 3D process was that the prints used to to show them had to remain exactly alike. There couldn't even be a frame, a single frame off, or else it would get out of sync. And the process would sometimes require two projectionists, which was wow. really expensive. The process required a silver screen, which is where the term silver screen comes from, mm-hmm. which was expensive and was also limiting in that at certain angles, you couldn't really see it well. So it would inhibit viewers from cer- sitting in certain seats, even for 2D films. Oh. It was also sometimes annoying and uncomfortable for viewers. People reported headaches, yeah. you know, if you're wearing glasses. I mean, even today, 3D films are sometimes yeah. annoying. And I think they would be even poorer quality and therefore more annoying because right. the projectionist ne- not necessarily didn't know what they were doing. Right. So this film, while it did have a 3D release in its first run theaters around November 1953, by the time the smaller theaters got it, there was already a 2D print out there that was being shown by most of those theaters right. who didn't want to... Who couldn't afford this. Couldn't afford it or the audience weren't beckoning yeah, for it. So yeah. really it's kind of a rare movie to see in 3D. And there was one television screening of it in 3d yes. in like 1991 yeah, I say. yeah yeah the early night i remember this uh my dad had seen this film years ago and and loved it and always talked about it and it was like unavailable for many years and i remember there was a prime time screening on syndication and we, it was, i was very excited to see it finally yeah, and i think years. they provided glasses and stores yeah. and whatnot and yeah i don't think we had the glasses i don't remember that mm. like you say it was not even able to be seen for many years i think right. it was wrapped up in the wayne estate until yes. like 1990 i want to say yeah i think it was they restored it perhaps in the late 80s again we watched it in 2d and i think it works fine it looks great as a 2d film because it doesn't um really get into the gimmicks of 3d so much there are a few things of the things coming at the camera like whatever. the knife jo- there's a couple moments in the knife fight between hondo and the apache yeah silva 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 yeah. yeah at the very beginning there's like a horse that comes over right the, the camera jumps over the camera there's like a spear in a in a battle that wayne has with uh, some apaches in the final like wagon circling attack there's a gun that points right at the yeah. camera which 
kind of harkens back to great train, great train robbery, robbery yeah. with the gun pointed right at right. the camera. I mean, I think the film uh, looks great. Otherwise, the locations are interesting uh, in Chihuahua, Mexico. You're, they're not commonly used in westerns. It's known that John Wayne had a great love of Mexico. About like ninety percent of the crew were Mexican locals. I'd guess probably just like the department heads were American. I think he had like a great relationship with all of the Mexican crew, even though he didn't really speak any Spanish. Right, very little. Um, but they uh. apparently w- would have done anything for him. And Michael Pate also said that despite the temperatures and the rough conditions and having to deal with all the 3D cameras and everything, that none of the crew ever complained. And I think, and I know a lot of later Wayne films were also shot in Mexico. Uh, Sons of Katie Elder, I think, War Wagon, uh, Big Jake. Um, so he, I think he enjoyed working there, yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely appropriate for this film, uh, seeing that kind of landscape. And yeah, it, it was... Is, I mean, it's the territory that the Apache really occupied. So. Yeah, yeah. And it was it's not what you see in films normally. Mm-hmm. Um, even the, the town where the cavalry post is, I think, was... Uh, kind of different for most 1950s mm-hmm. westerns. And I think it's a good time to mention Robert Burks, who is the director of photography for the majority of the film. I think the creative team, Pharaoh, Burks, presumably, mm-hmm. uh, Wayne also being a producer, yeah. wanted to, they wanted to use this kind of trendy 3D process, but they wanted to use it more for the depth of field it provided. I think Pharaoh wanted to use it to display those Mexican landscapes right. that are so beautiful. That thought process about 3D reminded me more of like how Christopher Nolan thinks about 3D today. Yeah. Not wanting to use the gimmicky, like almost like you're at a theme park with, you know, stuff shooting out at you right, as well. Right, right. If I can use this opportunity to talk about uh, the great DP Robert sure. Burks. Sure, one of, one of the all-time greats. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I want to say he's not one that gets a lot of credit just because a lot of his work is more invisible. He kind of molds himself to the director's vision for certain directors like he's famously been attached to Hitchcock for many films I think that shows more because Hitchcock's directing style is more it's so showy distinct and, yeah. and recognizable yeah whereas like I would say in this film it's a little invisible I I, mean, I didn't really notice yeah Pharaoh is not really I don't think a very distinct style-wise director um just sort of one of those solid craftsmen he made some interesting films his kind of woman with robert mitchum and jane russell wake island which is a great world war ii movie um but yeah not not a dis- distinctive filmmaker i wouldn't say but anyways back and to both i would say both pharaoh and burks kind of work in various genres they're yes. not tied down right to... they're not known for any one particular thing yeah just to, to cover Burks a little bit, he worked his way up through the Warner Brothers special effects labs and then camera department starting when he was 19 and then was promoted to DP and director of photography in 1944 at the age of 35, making him the youngest fully accredited DP at the time. Wow. He had become an expert on forced perspective techniques, which were widely used at the time as cost-saving cost measures. Like I said, he would go on to become a famous collaborator with Hitchcock working on, I think, 12 films in 13 wow. years with wow. him. That's quite a uh, partnership. Yeah. Um, including another famous 3D release, Dial in for Murder, sure. from 1954. Right. He would go on to be nominated for Oscars for uh, Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, A Patch of Blue, and then winning one for To Catch a Thief, which has been called a magnificent example of the VistaVision technique. Hmm. He's also known for his black and white photography on The Fountainhead from 1949, oh, yeah. a little yeah. bit earlier example. Um, and he would work with Pharaoh again in 1954 on The Boy from Oklahoma. Okay. He's also the DP on one of my favorite films, The Music Man, <laughs> which is not known for its photography. <laughs> and, but really, he just had this pretty astounding career from the 40s to the 60s, 55 features in 25 years. Wow. 
Wow. So he worked a lot. Uh, Prolific. Finally ending with the James Coburn comedic western Waterhole number three. Oh, that was his last film. Yeah. Interesting. He actually died somewhat early at the age of 59, which reportedly devastated Hitchcock. Wow. And it said that they might have gone on to collaborate on, you know, maybe other future masterpieces. Hmm. Uh, Hitchcock would only go on to make four films after... Yeah, after, um, yeah, uh, Topaz? After Marnie was, Marnie. Their, was their, their last, last collaboration. He was known to do a lot of planning before he got into set. He was really involved in the pre-production process, which was unusual for a DP at the time. Um, and just his technical background, I think, really benefited him. He was able to use it on these 3D films and these different color processes, as well as uh, really effects-heavy films like The Birds. Hitchcock would even say that if Bob Burks and the rest of us hadn't been technicians ourselves, the film would have cost $5 million instead of the $3 million that it cost. Mm. Just wanted to give that little yeah. tribute to Robert Burks on this uh, podcast. No, definitely. He's he's one of the legends um, in the business. Now, if you want to move on to the cast. Sure, um, yeah. It got kind of an interesting cast. Yes. Uh, People you would recognize from other westerns. Um, Ward Bond. Leo Gordon. Rodolfo Acosta, who plays one of the Apaches. Paul Fix is in the film. Uh, a young James Arness, just before he was... Uh, got the job on Gunsmoke, which Wayne recommended him for. Actually, this might not have even starred Wayne, despite it being produced by him. That's true. Yeah, originally, um, Wayne wanted to cast Glenn Ford as Hondo. Ford had just worked on a previous film produced by John Wayne called Plunder in the Sun, also directed by John Farrow. And Glenn Ford had such a bad time working with John Farrow that he refused to star in this film. So Wayne took over. And also, Catherine Hepburn was originally considered for the part that of Angie that Geraldine Page got. She was told that the part would be equal to, to John Wayne's, which I think originally it may have been. But as it, the project developed, Wayne's part took more of a role. Because the Angie character does sort of disappear toward the end of the film. Yeah. During I, the, the fight scenes and stuff. We can talk about that more later, but yeah. I would say that's one unfortunate point about the, the film is her, the disappearance of her character. Yeah. The, but the casting of Geraldine Page, I think, is very unusual for a Western of this time, and they got her from the New York stage. She's listed as being introduced in this film as if it was her first film, but I think she had an uncredited role that earlier that year. In Taxi. Yeah, this is her first like major role. Yeah, it's kind and, of her breakout. Yeah, and um, Oscar-nominated role. I, it must have been after the talk of Katherine Hepburn being in the film that Wayne said that he wanted more of an unknown actress, which is, I assume, why they went after Geraldine Page. Right. I could see Catherine Hepburn in the part especially having read the the short story where she is such like a tough character yeah whereas in the film like it starts off that the Hondo character is able to see through her lie that her husband hasn't been around because she is unable to do all these things right she doesn't keep the axe sharp she you know the horses haven't been shod and and all these things yeah she's not nearly as capable as as in the short story that said in the story she also kind of disappears as well for oh yeah for a while so. Yeah. But Paige is known as, as this Broadway uh, method-style actress. She right. studied with Uta Hagen and Lee Strasberg and was actually later blacklisted for her connection to Hagen. Oh. She didn't work in film for about 10 years. Wow. She described acting as a bottomless cup, saying that if I studied for the next 90 years, I'd just be scratching the sur- surface. Wow. So she was a very studied actress, and I think she came up against some conflict on this film working with these film actors who yes. had not been through the training that she had. Right. She would later become known for her stage and film role in Sweet Bird of Youth, but her first breakout role on the stage, a little bit before this film, was in uh, the Tennessee Williams play Summer and Smoke in 1952. Right. right. And she would later star in the film version as right. well. She would end up being Oscar nominated for this role, and a little fun fact about that is that she's only one of 
two acting nominations for a film shot in 3D. Right. I couldn't find exactly that source <laughs> for what the other one is, but my guess is that it's Sandra Bullock for Gravity. Yes. Which, in that case, would make Geraldine Page's nomination the first 3D film acting, acting nomination. nomination. Yeah. She would later appear in the Don Siegel film The Beguiled with Clint Eastwood. Yes. And Siegel called Page certainly as fine an actor as I've ever worked with. Mm. I never have gotten along with anyone better than I did with her. By 1984, she'd been nominated for seven Oscars with no win, tying the record at the time with Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton for nominations without a win. Not bad company. Yeah. <laughs> but she finally won the Academy Award in 1984 for the trip to Vancouver. Right. As a group... The nominees for Best Actress tonight have been nominated 24 times and have won four Oscars. Now it's time to make that five Oscars. The nominees for performance by an actress in a leading role, Anne Bancroft in Agnes of God, Whoopi Goldberg in The Color Purple, Jessica Lange in Sweet Dreams, Geraldine Page in A Trip to Bountiful, Meryl Streep in Out of Africa. I consider this woman the greatest actress in the English language. The winner is Geraldine Page in a trip to Bonneville. She was also nominated for four Tony Awards in her career, won two Golden Globes, two Primetime Emmys, and a BAFTA. But as I said, she didn't quite get along with everyone on the set of this film. Right. Uh, for example, according to a Wayne biography, Wayne approached the film knowing that he would have to kiss her in the film, and hearing that her teeth looked as if she had already spent a lifetime on some frontier where toothpaste and dentists were unknown. Wow. He immediately <laughs> sent her to a Beverly Hills d dentist who crammed 20 years of dental work into three days, <laughs> cleaning, picking, fi uh, filling, pulling, and capping away until Paige's mouth could stand the scrutiny of a zoom lens. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's rough. I mean, but it shows she might have been perfect for the part if she had frontier That's teeth. That's true. That's true. Although I, I don't really think they like to show that too much yeah, in, in the 1950s uh, films. She um, also apparently alienated some cast and crew members with her bad table manners, eating mashed potatoes and gravy with her fingers. She apparently hated bathing. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So, <laughs> so out on the in the deserts, uh, on on location, not a good not a good uh, thing. Maybe that was her attempt at method acting, or maybe oh, she was just like that. May, I don't yeah. know. That would be pretty intense, though. That would be an intense way to get into character. Definitely. definitely. That's funny. And actually, her Oscar nomination totally baffled John Wayne who had made sarcastic comments to her about Stanislavski and being a stage actress <laughs> and her lack of you know film yeah. experience it worked out though yeah well it's interesting the two different styles of acting because Wayne I think gives an excellent performance in this yeah. film yeah he's not out of his league no and, no. and yeah clearly and against and the neither titan is she of Broadway yeah. in a film yeah. that is clearly like John Wayne's film right. he's the king of this film Literally it, being the star and the producer. Right. It sort of makes me think of um, Red River with him, him and Montgomery Clift. Because yeah. Clift, uh, a, a method actor and a stage actor, and yet they work so well together, despite their different styles. You would think, oh, this is not going to work, but it's it's amazing. That's so. a good point. You hear a lot of those stories like, you know, Dustin Hoffman and uh, Laurence Olivier and Marathon Man. And right, right. His mocking the of that. Right, but... the clashing styles of the different generations. and yeah. But we're still talking about these films now, so just hire great actors, and <laughs> it doesn't matter how they get to it. I also have a story. Of, at one point, John Ford showed up suddenly on the set and observed uh, a love scene that they were shooting. And Ford told Pharaoh that audience wouldn't believe that John Wayne had fallen in love with such a homely woman. <laughs> and so as a result, they came up with that line, oh, line. forcing Paige to say, I know I'm a homely woman. And later, John Wayne's wife, uh, Pilar, 
would say it never occurred to Ford, Duke, or John Farrow to consider how she would feel about having to redo the love scene with the additional lines they wanted her to say. <laughs> that's pretty harsh. Yeah, that's that's harsh. Especially being an actress and you're already self-conscious. Right. And Insecure. You're out of your element. Yeah. You're in a foreign land. You don't and, know and really any of these. Your first film. And... You're probably the only woman on set. Yeah. Uh, she would later reveal that because it was so slow shooting in 3D and mm. having to deal with all the problems, that they had lots of time to sit in the scorching mexican heat that right. we've heard that it was more than 100 degrees every right. day just boiling heat no shade yeah. she would sit and listen to john farrow and john wayne in horror she says everybody tried to be duke's right hand man and his favorite it was like the stories you hear about the old court days everybody was trying to slice everybody else's reputation in the duke's eyes there was tremendous tremendous competition hmm. but by the end she would go on to respect wayne saying he hates all kinds of hypocrisy and falderall He's a terribly honest man, and that comes across on the screen, underlined by the parts he plays. One of his first mottos, I think, is always to be the hero to the people around you. Wayne has a leadership quality so that people revere him. Mm. And that definitely comes through in this part, I think, especially. Yeah. It really seems to embody what he is as a kind of a screen hero, and I would assume what he wanted people to see of sure. him. So it seems that uh, Paige didn't really get along with many of the people on set, and yeah. it also seems that... Wayne and Pharaoh had kind of a rough relationship, uh, made worse on their later film together, The Sea Chase. Apparently oh, yeah. they were just, you know, it blows by then. And about this film, uh, Wayne later said that Pharaoh didn't really have a great deal to do with the film. Everything was set up before he came on it. It was written, and I went out and looked for locations and picked the locations where each scene would be shot. I went back and brought the cameraman, and they said, there's no color here. I said, wait until I show you. And within 17 miles of town, I had white molten rock, blue pools of water, black buttes, big chalk white buttes. Yeah, Wayne at this point in his career, he, uh, this was the year after The Quiet Man. Um, he'd already made Red River, the Cavalry Trilogy, um, but this is pre-Searchers. So he's, you know, really, I think, ascending to the height of his career. And at this point was about to be like, if he wasn't already, would be soon be the number one box office star. And would hold that position for a long time. I was going to ask you, I know what your favorite John Wayne film is, uh -huh. but what would you say is your favorite era of Wayne? If you had to pick kind of a time period. I think like late 40s to late 50s, I think, is my favorite era for John Wayne. Okay. Um, you know, like The Quiet Man, The Searchers, Rio Bravo, Red River, the Cavalry Trilogy. Although, I mean, I love, you know, other films outside of that that time period i think that's probably my favorite he wasn't too heavy at that point you know <laughs> heavy dramatically uh, or... you know, he just got wider and wider as years mm, went on mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> no but i think that's like the the prime he's very lean and and, and tough i think during yeah. those years i'm not as well read in wayne's filmography as you are but i was gonna also say like late 40s early 50s around the time of this film i yeah. think he's kind of at his top fighting ability yes, like yes, you say yeah, yeah. And, and you've got some real classics in that right right that's period. there's yeah so many great movies yeah. in that time period and he's working with ford and hawks and and so many people like definitely that, so. and i also feel like by the time you get to his later films he's a little bit out of the zeitgeist like it feels more yes. like an older man commenting on kind of a newer man's territory like you get a lot I, more of the revisionist films then and and he's seeing john wayne trying to be a revisionist of his own genre that he sort of helped popularize seems yeah. a bit weird to yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'd rather leave that to other people, personally. Yeah. And not Again, not to say there aren't some great films in there. But, yeah, it becomes it becomes a different era. And, and he and he's he kind of continues doing the same thing. And I think he becomes more the John Wayne 
persona that that people think of by the late by the mid to late 60s he sort of settles into that type and doesn't really play as diverse characters as i think he does like i don't think hondo is similar to ethan edwards Mm -hmm. or sean thornton in in the quiet man i mean i think it's a it's a you know he does a lot of different distinct things i think during this era and at this point, like he's at his peak, but he's not. Not every aspect of his life is known by the time you know. Right. Get, he's get not to the, so. The, he's not so tied up into politics and and the anti-war movement and all that. The youth culture and those conflicts and that kind of thing. I think you get to a point where you know too much about a star. Yeah. And they become the star more than the actor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people can get past that, but I kind of feel like Wayne doesn't. And then, and just to round out uh, some of the cast members, uh, we should mention Ward Bond is in this movie, um, who was played football with John Wayne at USC, and they both were extras for John Ford and came up together and and were such good friends and uh, were friends with Ford, and those, the two of them became so important to Ford's career. Ward Bond is a great character actor. Um, in Definitely. so many, so many diverse movies and roles, and just so reliable too. Yeah, you're you're never sad to see him. No, he's always very good. And then also uh, Michael Pate, who plays the Apache Chief Vittorio, he was an Australian actor, and I think new to the states at that point, hadn't been in too many films in America. And he would later go on to play many Native Americans in television episodes, and later Peckinpah cast him as Sierra Chiriba in Major Dundee. But he does a fine job. I mean... Yeah, I think this is his first role as a Native American character, and he would also go on to kind of reprise this role in the television version. But we saw him on Rawhide today playing Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Strangely enough, just turned on the TV. An episode of Rawhide, yeah. I think even he, being a white Australian man, was a little surprised to be cast as this Native American chief. Right. Um, when they brought him into audition, he said, you know, for which part yeah. are we talking about here? <laughs> like he didn't see a role for himself in the film. And then I guess they put a wig on him and a little makeup at uh, the audition. And I mean, ideally you'd love to see a Native American actor play the part, but that wasn't really uh, done during that era in yeah. Hollywood. He does have an interesting face, I would say. Yeah, it's an unusual face, I think. Yeah. And I think he plays a lot of villains in his career, yeah, too. Yeah, I think so, too. So yeah. he's one of those kind of character yeah. actors. Another bit of trivia for him is he's the first lighter from the James Bond series. He played it in oh, the yeah. TV, the first TV version of Bond in which it's Jimmy Bond, right. the American. We're, yeah. And uh, oh. his character is Clarence Lighter, who Instead of is Felix. English yes. to kind of keep the Anglo-American American. relationship. Oh, just going back to how he plays a lot of villainous characters, he said that he always played his villains as if he was the hero and everybody else was the villains. Yeah. Which I think is the way you've got to do it. You've got to consider yourself, yeah. You... No villain thinks they're a villain. Right, that they're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. And he was a henchman on an episode of Batman, so you, well, you know, you yeah. got to love that. But like even, uh, there's a great Mitchell and Webb sketch I always reference of the Nazis who realize they must be the bad guys because they have skulls right. on their hats. <laughs> I think, I, I like to think that that's how some of the great villainous actors approach their roles is, right. oh, the only reason I'm the bad guy is because I've got the dark wardrobe right. on kind of thing. <laughs> um, did you want to talk at all about Lee Acker, who plays uh, Johnny? Son? Yeah, not sure if it's Acker or Acker. Yeah, I'm not sure either um, how to pronounce that. He actually originally auditioned for the role of Jeff in the 1954 Lassie, oh. um, but ended up being... Uh, Rusty on the Adventures of Tin- Renton Ten. Oh, two weeks later, two weeks after the, really? the Lassie audition, <laughs> he told a newspaper reporter that when he reached the age of twenty-one, he was paid a ten thousand dollar lump sum by the studio that produced Renton Ten, and he spent the rest of the sixties traveling around the world as sort of a flower child. Huh. Uh, he kind of really 
I think got phased out once he became an adult, couldn't really find adult work really yeah. after 1963. So he would, at the end of his acting career, became involved as a producer and later worked as a carpenter. And uh, he still attends conventions today. Hmm. So he's, he's still around, still respects his work from this time, Rondo, right. and, and speaks uh, well of his time with John Wayne. To me, it's a very classical representation of a child in a Western, uh, a boy especially, who just looks up to the the wandering stranger coming into town right. wants to be just like him, wants right. him to teach him all the skills he knows. Right. And then doesn't want him to leave by the end. Yeah. And then there's the dog. John Wayne uh, Hondo travels everywhere with his ragged looking uh, dog named Sam. Who was played by a dog named Pal, apparently. Yeah. Um, who is the original screen lassie. Yeah. Maybe auditioned with <laughs> Lee. Who knows? He, he doesn't really look like a collie here. No. They, I guess they have his coat teased or mangled in a way. And, and he has a look like a scar on his face. And uh, he's, he's a rough looking dog. Yeah. And Wayne is uh, steadfastly independent and believes in independence. And although he's named the dog, he doesn't feed him or anything. What can I feed your dog? Nothing, thanks. He makes out by himself. And I'll run any rabbit in the territory. Oh, it's no trouble at all. You don't mind, ma'am. I'd rather you didn't feed him. Oh, I see. You don't want him to get in the habit of taking food from anyone else. Well, you can hand it to him. No, ma'am, I don't feed him either. Sam's independent. He doesn't need anybody. I want him to stay that way. It's a good wife. Well, everyone needs someone. Yes, ma'am, most everyone. Too bad, isn't it? You were telling me that although the dog is supposed to be really vicious in the film, I wouldn't touch that dog, son. He don't take to patting. Behind the scenes, the temperatures got so hot right. that he just panted on camera. Right, he wouldn't and, snarl when on cue or anything. And so to to help that, they kept him in his air-conditioned crate while on set the whole time. It was only brought out for his shots, so it was probably the most pampered yes. being on set. <laughs> The most comfortable cast member. After the film was over, he actually won the dog. John Wayne won the dog in a poker game from the trainer. Wow. And interestingly, in Big Jake uh, in 1971, John Wayne has a dog that looks pretty much oh, really? like the same. Yeah. And he, he just calls it dog in that movie and it <laughs> attacks people on command. I will say for this film, though, that it broke one of the cardinal rules i would say of film that you don't kill the dog <laughs> while we were watching the film i turned to clarence and i said the dog's not gonna die is it sure enough <laughs> i think right on cue yep the dog was dead and it was almost like i couldn't forgive the film after that <laughs> should we talk about uh the director john farrow a little bit yeah go for it i think i mentioned earlier he directed such films as like wake island his kind of woman uh where danger lives not really tied to one genre necessarily. He had a, a heart out on this film, had a commitment to another project, and because of all the problems with the 3D camera, the film fell behind schedule, and he had to leave before the film was completed, as did Robert Burks, I think, to go work with him. Wayne asked John Ford to come in as a favor and shoot the final scene, which is the wagon train attack uh, battle at the end. Pharaoh uh, may be most famously known as the father of Mia Pharaoh. Um, he was married to Maureen O'Sullivan, who played Jane in the Johnny Weissmiller Tarzan films. What else should we talk about? Um, the portrayal of uh, Native Americans. In yeah, film? I think to me it was 
either a complicated portrayal or a muddled portrayal of the Native yeah. Americans. Yeah. I would say they're shown in a more sympathetic light than films before this. I, th I think you're starting to get into an era where yeah. there's some more sympathy being shown. There was like a trend sort of starting in the early 1950s with films like Anthony Mann's The Devil's Doorway and uh, Broken Arrow directed by Delmer Daves that were uh, sympathetic portrayals of, of Native Americans. Yeah. And I think this follows in that. But regard. nonetheless, the... The Apaches are still portrayed as the villains, and they're inevitably is leading up to this battle with them, right? With the the wagon train, um, but you do see kind of a good relationship between Vittorio and uh, Angie. Yeah, yeah, Angie. You really see Vittorio trying to take on this boy as his own. You know, keeps emphasizing that you got to raise him right, raise Ooh. him to be a good warrior. Right, like clearly has a lot of like loving features and caring features. Right, he's very concerned about the boy's welfare and making sure he's brought up properly and with a father and and uh meanwhile on the other side i i personally said i wasn't that invested in the cavalry i wasn't that into them winning yeah you know they're led by this really young young man like yeah. fresh out of the academy a green lieutenant right out of west point yeah so it kind of just makes me think they're unprepared and 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 wayne's character has a lot of sympathy for the apache yes and, yeah and it's mentioned early on that the, the reason the apaches are upset and, and are on the war path or whatever you want to call it is because the whites broke the treaty so you get that point of view. Yeah, um, you just, early on, I think it invests you with the guilt of the white man yes, sort of yes. invading the Apache area. And and John Wayne had lived with the Apaches and and, and had had an Apache wife for a mm -hmm. while. Um, but it was my impression, maybe you disagree with me, that Wayne really only used this wife as kind of a companion, wasn't really in love with her. Yeah, it's it's a little it's an odd line that he gives about it. It's a little it's ambiguous, maybe and, muddled as you said, yeah. yeah. Angie asks him, D "Did you love her?" and he says, "I needed her." Yeah. Which to my view came across as you know, I just needed her cuz she was around. Right. <laughs> but I could see it being read the other way that I needed her like a man needs a woman. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> But yeah, and then there's a lot of talk about, you know, the Apache way of life was good, but even though it's dying or it's already dead pretty much, you know, there's there's sympathy paid toward that, even though the whites win the big battle and, mm -hmm. and are, you know, history goes forward. So, yeah, like, you know. like you pointed out after we watched the film that you don't want to see the film rewrite history. You don't right. want to see the Apaches winning in an untruthful way. That right. would feel too phony. Yeah. But maybe you do want to see less of the white man's perspective and more yes. of the Indian it, perspective. It is still told from the white man's perspective, despite all the talk of, of the Apache way of life. Mm -hmm. and, and interestingly, Vittorio, Michael Pate's character, who is a major... Uh, part of the film he dies off screen yeah we're told that he was killed in a battle off screen which is interesting the screenwriter in me wants to really object to that because you infamously must show not tell right but i sort of feel like it's it's kind of an interesting way to go because it's not the typical way it would be to show him die either heroically or you know some big sacrifice but it just happens i, I think that's maybe more uh true to the way things happen in life like you know you just never know i see what you mean but it it then didn't really leave any stakes for me with the final battle. Yeah. I, I got real disinterested in the final battle, the, truthfully. The final battle is not very interesting. Um, I agree. Really, the first two acts of the film are the, the most interesting yeah. part. I would say it starts off high and then starts to go does, down yeah. from, from yeah. there. I really loved the beginning with um, really just 
uh, Wayne and Paige. Yes. And like you say, it's interesting seeing it unfold in how the Apaches think that Hondo is Paige's husband. Right. That's, that's sort of an interesting twist. But once it gets into the battle and the cavalry, and it, that it, feels like a separate movie to me. And I want to see more of the romance. And like we say, uh, Paige's character disappears. Yeah. Um, it it becomes point. more just a standard Victoria disappears yeah. by the end. And then Silva, who's played by Rudolfo Acosta, who fought has a, a big fight with Wayne, uh, a knife fight. And, I, and maybe that's why they did it, because Wayne and Vittorio develop a respect for each other through the film. And maybe they didn't want to have Wayne kill him or a, show a fight between them at the end. Yeah. And he already had bad blood with Silva. Mm-hmm. So, it was, you know. And I mean, that's what happens in the story as well. It's it's this other warrior that mm-hmm. he gets into a fight with. Yeah. And- but it is unsatisfying not to see what happens to Vittorio because he is such an important character and yeah. an interesting character and a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. He's not just a villain. He's not, I wouldn't say he's a villain at all in the film. I would say he's representing the villainous side or the antagonistic side. Right. But there's so much good about him, about trying to make peace in his own way yeah. with the other side. He's doing what he thinks is right yeah. for his his people. Yeah. yeah. Real quick, I just wanted to add that, like I said, I love the relationship between Hondo and Angie. Mm-hmm. And it just amused me that a couple of the taglines for the film, uh, one was, out of the gun smoke, into her heart. <laughs> That's how you get the ladies That's to see a western. You, yep. <laughs> uh, and then the other one, first she was afraid he'd stay, then she was afraid he wouldn't. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It is a little ambiguous, though, I would say, as to whether they end up going to California together at the end or not. Yeah. They sort of head back to camp. You don't see them on their you don't way see them or anything. Way. No. But I think they do. Yeah. And then I also wanted to say just about the, the final battle. Like I said, I was a little disconnected from it. Yeah. I don't want to criticize John Ford, the, <laughs> the emperor of all Westerns. But it was a little hard for me to follow exactly what was going on, the beats of the battle. Yeah, the, there's nothing especially Fordian about uh, yeah. that ba- that final scene. I think he was just there, like, going through the motions, sure. just doing what he needed it's, to do. It's really told from, like, a, like a, a football field yes, perspective. Yes. You see the overhead shot. It's a lot of wide shots, wide. Yeah. The way it's filmed felt a little bit to me like what you might have seen in a Wild West show of, like, hmm. the Buffalo Bill recreation of, of that sort of thing. Yeah. It, that's how I imagine it is, you know, instead of we're, we're not getting the live recreation of it we're getting a filmed recreation but nonetheless hmm. it's a recreation yeah and that's what it felt like to me yeah uh, it, it's not very engaging it didn't uh, really feel battle. even integrated into the plot i wasn't quite sure it, how it started even yeah it does sort of feel tacked on in a way and like i said it's not in the story not that it has to be totally right right you know reliable to the story but the story was a complete story into itself and now you're adding on this extra bit and maybe it was just convention of the time like we need a big battle or something yeah i mean otherwise there's not a lot of action really other than the knife scene and then you get the early kind of attack with angie's husband yeah yeah there's the fight in the bar and then when they later her husband tries to ambush john wayne yeah and and like that was kind of another plot hole maybe that you pointed out was it's not entirely clear what is driving Angie's husband to chase after yeah, uh, Hondo after in this way they they have a little bit of beef they get and, in a fight yeah and maybe the husband thinks that Hondo's been messing around with his wife because he's taken his horse I mean which Angie has given him right right um but well, like even we're not sure about that and then uh they have the little scene in the tent where the guy wants Wayne to make his dog move and he won't do it. Be obliged, sir, if you would leave. A fine business. The whole territory is Get! Get out of the way, you mean. That's your cur. Get him out of the way. Walk around him. 
I'll be hanged if I go out of my way for any cur dog. Man ought to do what he thinks is best. So clearly, you know, he doesn't like dogs, so he must be a bad yeah, guy, right? Yeah, right. Well, clearly the director and John Wayne didn't like dogs, so they <laughs> must be bad guys, because they <laughs> killed off the dog. But it was Silva who killed the dog who was the really bad one. That's true. So yeah. he's trying mm. to, maybe he's trying to make you hate mm. Silva more. All Silva needed was like a big scar on his yeah. face. <laughs> That's how you'd really know. Um, should we talk about connections to this to other movies? That, that yeah, this, movie this kind of is saluted to in some other works. Well, I mean, before we get to that, actually, I think you wanted to talk about the connection to Shane. Yeah, it has kind of superficial similarities to Shane. Shane came out the summer of 1953, uh, early summer, I think, and this came out in November. The boy and the mother and, like... The way Shane come and comes and has you know a romantic influence on both Gene Arthur and uh, Brandon DeWild. Not a romantic influence no, on Brandon no. DeWild, <laughs> but the way Brandon Different DeWild, film. yes, <laughs> the way Brandon DeWild looks up to him and is worships him as a hero and yeah. wants to teach him how to shoot and all that kind of thing. There's a lot of similarities in that regard. It, I would say it's portrayed more extensively and more melodramatically in Shane, the relationship yeah. between the boy and the man coming into town. I mean, for sure. obviously you have one of the most iconic quotes in all of Western yes. history, in yes. all movie history from Shane. And this, you don't really get any moment of that. No. You don't. You never even get to that emotional point. I would say he he doesn't treat Hondo. The little boy doesn't treat Hondo as like this godlike figure that that Shane is. I think. Yeah. If anything, <laughs> he comes to see Vittorio in a little bit of that light. Yeah. I mean, he does say, "Mom, I don't want to be an Apache." Right. At one point, but for a little while, he's kind of he kind of likes it. Yeah. He's into it, <laughs> which maybe all little boys would. Yeah, I think to so. To have this. I mean, Chief, take him on right. under his wing. Like Fantasize that. of becoming a, a great warrior yeah. and, and all that, yeah. In the opening of The Shootist, which was John Wayne's final film, they used several clips. There's like an opening narration covering his life, and they used several clips from films, and they use a clip from this movie. There's a wanted poster of Hondo on the wall of the sheriff's office in Rio Lobo. In Rio Lobo, yeah. There's also footage used from the John Ford-filmed uh, wagon, wagon train, train attack sequence in Blazing Saddles, right. which is played for more uh, comedic effect <laughs> in Blazing Saddles. In a way, you have John Ford collaborating with Mel, with Mel Brooks, Brooks, which is one of the greatest <laughs> things ever. Uh, you also have a little bit of a shout-out in the 1973 film, The Train robbers in which uh, Wayne oh, plays yeah. a character named Lane which is Hondo's right. last name and Anne Margaret plays a character named Lowe Mrs. which Lowe. is Angie's last name yeah and then kind of my favorite shout out on this you know list of shout outs is that in uh, uh, Married with Children the sitcom right right uh, it's the favorite <laughs> movie of Al Bundy and there I think there are a couple episodes where he never gets to see his favorite right. movie Hondo <laughs> because it airs only once every 17 years on TV and always something gets in the way and his copy of it gets taped over and he even tells his family members at one point your lives are meaningless compared to Hondo <laughs> I like that uh, attitude. I like that too. I also wanted to mention the director George Miller, another Australian actually. Oh yeah. Uh, has said that Hondo is a big influence on the Road Warrior. Oh, the, interesting. The Mad Max film. Interesting. Which I think you can see some of that. I mean, the the stranger, the lone stranger yeah. kind of coming into town, the little yeah. boy, uh, maybe even some stylistic similarities. True. If you go back and yeah, the Road Warrior it. plays like a Western in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Also, I thought John Wayne's look in this film is different primarily from what he usually the buckskin shirt that he wears and there's like a, the famous opening sequence where he's walking toward camera with the dog and he's got that buckskin shirt on and his cavalry hat and uh, it's a good look for him it's not like his traditional 
uh, like I sort of think like in the late 50s you sort of see him transition to what would become his look of the bib mm-hmm. shirt and the vest and 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 he didn't really deviate from that too much but this is a it's a different look for him. I mean, he, I thought it was a good wardrobe choice for him. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I was a little disappointed when he changed into another outfit yeah. after the buckskin uh, <laughs> when he goes back to see the cavalry. He does go to the blue shirt and the vest in oh, this yeah. one, yeah. <laughs> and it the hat, so good. I know, and the hat he wears, I think, is the hat he first got in Stagecoach. He wears it oh. in the cavalry films for John Ford. He wears it in uh, Rio Bravo and some others, I think, as well. Hmm. i got to go back to you, know, you saying that Glenn Ford was a possible choice to play Hondo. Again, reading the the story, I really did picture uh, John Wayne in the role. I mean, that that said, I watched the film before I read the story. I think he's portrayed in the story as more of a hulking presence and uh, like a man's man. And I think very impressive to both the chief as well as Angie. And to me, the Duke portrays more of that that attitude and that presence better than Glenn Ford, yeah. who is a great actor and a yeah, great no, Western yeah. actor. Yes, yes. But to me, he's more of like an everyman, and John Warren, John Wayne is more of a a larger than life yes. figure. Yes, yeah. I, 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 I and especially can't... to portray these huge morals that yes, he are has a very suggested. definite way of life and a definite outlook on life in this movie. I, I can't imagine Glenn Ford in that role. Really, yeah. It, it suits Wayne to a T. I think in an alternate universe where Glenn Ford plays the part maybe it's a worse movie because of his relationship with pharaoh yeah maybe maybe the film just tanks yeah in that. and maybe yeah. he doesn't have chemistry uh, with geraldine page right so. i think it's probably it's up there with one of the best wayne films not directed by john ford or howard yeah. hawks i enjoyed it but i think it is a traditional western I mean, this is, again, coming from someone that had not seen it before this right, viewing. Right, right. Um, you had seen it before. Yeah. Really good, but standard is my, I, yeah, <laughs> my overall review of it. I like it. I've always wanted to love it more than I do, and I've yeah. not seen it that many times, and I always sort of go years without seeing it, and I'll think, oh, I, I should watch that again. I, You know, I, I feel like I like it more than I do, and then I watch it again, I'm like, oh, I like it, but it's not, it's not uh, an essential for me. So I think that wraps it up for Hondo. Hondo! We will be back soon with another Western, um, maybe a spaghetti Western. I don't know. We'll see. So goodbye from me, Felicity, him, Clarence, and the spirit of Ward Bond. Adios. Adios.